Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile, the show from Premier Christian Radio that brings you the life, faith and ministry of Christians in all walks of life. I'm Justin Briley, Theology and Apologetics Editor for Premier, and my guest today is renowned geneticist Dr Francis Collins, who was recently awarded the Templeton Prize. The Profile is brought to you in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine, and you can read the interview you're about to hear in the latest July edition of the mag. Would you like a free sample copy? Well, simply ask for one by visiting premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today's show was originally recorded as an episode of my unbelievable show, but we're re-airing it here on the profile as it really does act as a super introduction to the life and faith of Francis Collins. Francis currently works as director of the National Institutes of Health at the forefront of developing a vaccine for COVID-19. He's also held prestigious positions as the head of the Human Genome Project and founded the science and faith organization BioLogos. He tells his story of coming to faith as a junior doctor in in his book, The Language of God. Thank you so much, first of all, for being able to come on the show. This comes at an extremely busy time for you. Um, you tell us a little bit about what daily life looks like for you at the moment, Francis, uh, with, with your role at the National Institutes for Health. I will try to do that. And Justin, it's wonderful to be a guest on your show and looking forward to the conversation and to the questions that people have sent in. It is an incredibly intense time right now. I'm talking to you from my home office, uh, which is about four miles away from NIH, which is where my job is. But I've not been at NIH except for two or three times in the last 10 weeks because I'm kind of trying to run this $42 billion a year operation from my own little office here <laughs> in order to maintain all of the safe behaviors of social distancing and all the rest that I'm asking everybody else to do at the same time. So I'm uh, spending a lot of time on Zoom, as you might guess. I've never worked harder. I think when you look at the hours that are necessary to manage everything we're trying to do uh, in terms of developing better diagnostics and therapeutics and vaccines uh, for this uh, darn virus, uh, this guy right here, <laughs> this is a little 3D printed version uh, of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes this COVID-19 global pandemic. Uh, we are flat out on this and we gather every possible scientific capability to try to accelerate that process. So yeah, I'm putting in maybe 100 hours a week, maybe a little more uh, right here, uh, trying to steer all of that enterprise. And it is amazingly inspiring uh, to see the way people have rolled up their sleeves and put everything else aside and tried to do everything they can without worrying a bit right now about who gets the credit. We just yeah. to bring the best science to bear to save lives. Mm. The time every day feels like we have got to do everything we possibly could in this day to try to save those lives months from now that may still be at risk because I don't think we're going to be through this for a while. Indeed. Of preventing and treating it. Yeah. I, I, as I say, that's why I'm so grateful for you, for you making the time in an incredibly busy moment in your life. Um, we'll have a few more questions actually around the coronavirus that have come in from some sure. listeners later on. Um, sure. First, some reactions, though, in the midst of all this, uh, being awarded the Templeton Prize. How, how are you feeling about that? That was a stunner, I must say. I never imagined such a thing. When you look at the list of the previous uh, prize winners, my gosh, beginning with Mother Teresa, 
and including probably the person I most admire who's currently alive on the planet, and that's Archbishop Desmond Tutu. The idea that somehow I ended up on this roster, I just have to conclude the committee made a big mistake. <laughs> grateful to them. Well, that's very, that's very modest of you, Francis. <laughs> but but um, I, when I saw your name appear, I thought, well, that is a natural choice. Because um, in many ways, your life and work are so in keeping with what the Templeton Foundation is is keen to promote in terms of, as I say, the a celebration of scientific and spiritual curiosity. A big cash prize as well. Do you have any plans for the money? Well, it doesn't actually arrive until September. So my oh. wife had a good time thinking about various philanthropies because uh, we care a lot about various charities that we've invested in in modest scales. And we have a chance for an upgrade here. And you've already mentioned the BioLogos, the foundation that I had a chance to start before I became NIH director and had to step away from it because of concerns about conflict. And, and they have just turned into this wonderful meeting mm. on the internet, but also running various face-to-face meetings uh, for people who are curious about how do you put science and faith together in a fashion that is actually harmonious and not in conflict. And I think they've made a wonderful, wonderful contribution to that. And certainly one of the places I will want to support is that foundation. Fantastic. Well, um, if you want to find out more, I'll make sure there's a link to the Templeton Prize and you can find out more about the reasons that they selected Francis for this year. Um, I want to get as many of these listener questions in as we can, and a number of these are relevant to the areas we've already mentioned. But um, just first of all, fill us in on your background for those who aren't familiar. Um, You didn't grow up particularly with any great faith. Um, It was really something that you adopted as an adult. Do you want to tell us about the journey to that and how it uh, dovetailed with your interest in science as well? It was a journey, that's for sure. (laughs) No, I grew up in a family that was much more interested in arts and music and theater. Uh, My father was a college professor teaching drama. Um, and they were doing the 60s thing, but it wasn't the 60s yet. <laughs> Grew up on a small farm with no indoor plumbing and lots of hippie type people around, although we're, they weren't called hippies quite yet. And I didn't really have much exposure to faith other than being sent to the local church to learn music, which was a wonderful gift. But my dad encouraged me to ignore the theology and I followed <laughs> the interpretation. So by the time I got to college, I was probably an agnostic, although I don't know that I knew the word. Uh, by the time I got to graduate school in physical chemistry, I became pretty deeply skeptical of anybody who wanted to talk about spiritual matters. It was all very reductionistic in my head. And I guess at that point, I was an obnoxious atheist. <laughs> then I had a change in my, my scientific interests and my life plan and decided to step away from physics and chemistry as my main focus and go to medical school because I thought the science of human biology was getting increasingly interesting. I managed to avoid any real facing up to spiritual matters until that third year of medical school where now you're sitting at the bedside of good, honorable people who are facing the end of their life. And you're wondering, what would that be like if that was me? And I began to realize there are questions about God's existence and about what's the meaning of life that I've never really paid any attention to. And maybe it's time to have a look. And so I figured, okay, I'll have a look. It'll strengthen my atheism, and then I can go on. And to my surprise, particularly having been pointed to some very thoughtful writings by a guy named C.S. Lewis, I realized that my perceptions about God were those of a schoolboy. 
and then I'd never really done any homework to try to understand why people believe. And was there actually, even within science, some possible pointers that were more consistent with belief than they were with atheism? And mm. there were, and they were pretty compelling. I, I remember you've told the story a few times of uh, a woman on a ward that you were a, yes. a junior doctor on who was quite significant in prompting you on that journey, making oh, you yeah. think about that. Do you want to just briefly relate that story? Yeah. I guess all of us in our life, we have those moments that are sort of captured. You can sort of take your memory right back there. I know exactly where I was sitting. I know which room it was on which ward in North Carolina Memorial Hospital. Uh, this elderly woman who reminded me a lot of my grandmother, whose faith was very strong and who was facing the end of her life from really uh, advanced cardiac disease and would share her faith with me, even as she was struggling with terrible chest pains. And at one point, she, after being very open about what she believed, simply asked in the most straightforward way, Doctor, I've, I've shared my faith with you. What do you believe? Can you imagine that? And that just totally threw me. <laughs> Maybe people listening to this, imagine yourself in that situation and somebody in a very earnest way saying, what do you believe? Do you have an answer to that? Well, I sure didn't. I had no idea. And it really upset me that I had no idea. I'm, I was supposed to be, you know, a thoughtful, rational scientist who looks at important questions and collects evidence and decides what's the right answer. And I hadn't done any of that. And that was a turning point for me of running away from these questions to saying, I've got to run towards them and figure out what was a, a reasonable position for a thinking person to take. And um, to my surprise, that reasonable position was ultimately to see all the pointers for the being a creator God, to ultimately recognizing that God was interested in me. And then ultimately on top of that, getting to know the person, the historical person of Jesus Christ in a way that became utterly compelling. Now, it happened not in a blink, but over about two years with a lot of kicking and screaming on my part. But ultimately, age 27, I became a Christian. And that has been ever since really the rock upon which I stand in terms of trying to deal with any of these profound issues of the meaning of life and what is good and what is evil and how do we make moral decisions and how do we love each other. Mm. It all came about. Not in the way I ever would have guessed when I was that kid growing up on the farm uh, with a bunch of hippies around me. <laughs> it was mm. a journey. Well, obviously, a lot of the questions we've had in uh, relate to how you went on to put your science and that faith together um, over the course of your life. Um, we've perhaps already answered, actually, one of these questions. Christian wanted to know uh, two or three people who've influenced your turn to Christianity. You've obviously mentioned C.S. Lewis and, of course, this woman in the, the hospital ward. Is there anyone else you would say has had a particularly significant impact on your thinking as, as you grew in your faith? I've been fortunate uh, to have the chance to get to know, and particularly through the BioLogos efforts to bring people together, some profound, really deep thinkers about the faith. I right now would mention Tim Keller, uh, who is formerly the pastor of Redeemer in New York, um, now running an outreach to multiple other countries for church planting. Just a deeply thoughtful, wise, intellectually rigorous truth teller about faith and a dear friend. And, and when it comes to theology, uh, I think of John Walton, the Old Testament theologian at Wheaton, uh, whose books about uh, Genesis have been, I think, profound insights for lots of people who are struggling about how to put together what the Bible says about origins and what science teaches us. 
And on the New Testament side of things, uh, my friend Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, uh, who I didn't know until a few years ago, and uh, who has been such a deeply thoughtful expositor of what we could say about the resurrection, and who's also a pretty good guitar player. So we've also had a chance to jam a little bit here and there, I have to admit. Well, all, all three of them have been on this show before, and, and I, I have the privilege of, of having Tom uh, regularly sit down with me for a podcast we started about a year and a half ago called the what? Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast, and he's mentioned your friendship on there. In fact, he's even played on his, on his guitar the song you composed together. Um, oh, uh, uh, Genesis. Which, uh, yeah, a, a take on the Beatles classic yesterday um so i won't ask you to get your guitar out now francis um but interestingly since since it's come up one one of the people um who was getting in touch on uh, on twitter i think it was did want to know about your your musical influences uh this this was if i can find the right person drew yes who says what are your thoughts on music i know you're a musician um maybe preferred genres but but also um, Drew's interested in the idea that there's almost an apologetic to music, the way that it speaks to us in a, in a unique way uh, to, to our sense of the transcendent. I think many people, even oh, yes. non-Christians, people who wouldn't claim any belief in God, often experience something that's hard to simply boil down to chemicals and atoms when they experience a wonderful concerto or, or some piece of music that, that they love. What, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I am so there uh, with what Drew is saying. And uh, yeah, in fact, uh, there's even some interesting neuroscience I could say a word about. But in terms of my own influences, well, one of the many lives that my dad lived was being a folk song collector. And so growing up on this small farm, various folk song people would show up and uh, jam, usually because they had run out of money. And uh, so for me, music was primarily the traditional folk, uh, um, some bluegrass thrown in there too. And I learned to play the guitar in order to be part of all that, and also the keyboard. And I fell in love with classical music as well, and still am. And then vocal music of various sorts for a while, way back in Michigan, uh, when I was there on the faculty, I was actually the music minister of a little church, uh, trying every Sunday to come up with something that would inspire people, or at least keep them from wishing they were somewhere else. And uh, music has a way, as you've just said, as Drew points out, of touching us in fashions that is really sometimes hard to explain. I mean, if I hear right now, if you were to turn on uh, the second movement of Beethoven's third symphony, uh, the Eroica, I would absolutely get this chill that would run up and down my spine. I would find tears coming to my eyes. What is that about? Why does music have such power to do that for us? We at NIH, the National Institutes of Health, are interested in ways that that could be utilized therapeutically. There is a field of music therapy. It's been around since World War II, but it's largely empirical and often anecdotal. And now that we're getting a much better handle on how the brain works through a whole lot of exciting neuroscience, maybe we could bring those fields together, get the music therapists to talk to the neuroscientists, and we could come up with ways to make this approach for people with PTSD, for instance, or kids with autism, or people with Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, where you can sometimes find a way into uh, the brain that other means haven't succeeded. People with strokes who've lost the ability to speak can learn to sing and communicate that way. And all putting all this together, I think, is a particularly inspiring effort. Yeah. And I have a wonderful partner in that, this Music in the Mind program, by the name of Renee Fleming. 
Uh, Rene has become totally enamored of the ways in which neuroscience can further influence the impact of music. And she and I, working with the Kennedy Center and with a bunch of researchers at NIH, have built a fair amount of momentum for this as a really exciting research opportunity. Wow. Wow, that, that's, that's, that, that, I was not expecting that fulsome an answer to that question, but, but what a remarkable <laughs> thing that, no, but it's great because um, it sounds like some really interesting work going on there. I'd love to explore that further at some point. And we should not forget rock and roll, by the way, because there's a <laughs> part of me that is totally into that space and I'm in a rock and roll band, which unfortunately is on hiatus because of oh. COVID-19. But if you catch one of our performances, it, we're not bad. Fantastic. I look forward to hearing. Um, so let's start with, with um, some questions around science and faith issue. Um, so the language of God came out around the same time that there was a spate of new atheist books coming out as well. Um, the God Delusion by Dawkins and Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens and others. Um, Neil S. Robin uh, says sort of in the light of that, um, I'd like to ask if Francis has... Um, no, sorry, this is Matt Wallace first. I'll ask his question first. Ask, do you believe faith is increasing in the scientific community or decreasing? And what's the cause of that either way, would you say? I don't have really good statistics, but I think those who have tried uh, to assess what is happening in the scientific community would say that the interest in faith is probably slightly on the wane, but not a lot. Uh, you still will find 30, 40% of working scientists at all levels who will say they are believers. Uh, interestingly, if you ask the so-called uh, um, top of the pile, the elite uh, investigators, the members of the National Academy, that number drops pretty significantly. Uh, down to sort of single-digit percentages, uh, but it's not zero, and I'm here as one of those. Uh, why is that? I think, you know, it is hard as a scientist who has devoted your life to using the tools of science to answer questions about how nature works, to admit that there might be things that science can't do. I mean, you've given yourself to this approach uh, to figuring out what truth is. And the idea that there might be other kinds of truths uh, that science can't approach effectively makes people uneasy. And I think it's the natural default, therefore. Most scientists who say they're not believers, frankly, are not angry atheists or even atheists at all. They're in the agnostic category. And many of them, from my experience, just don't really want to think about it. It's sort of like one of those topics like, ooh, can we please discuss the you know, those small particles in the atom, or could we talk about some element of cell biology and, and not go there, please, because it just feels out of their sweet spot, to put it mildly. So, again, I think the fact, though, that lots of scientists are believers tells you that there must be something here in terms of the possible compatibility. And for me, it's not only compatibility, it's, it's harmony. It's a sense that these two ways of looking at truth enhance each other. As long as you're careful about which kind of truth you're talking about, which kind of question you're trying to answer, and you don't get that muddled up. And I was going to say, it, it strikes me that BioLogos was founded to some extent to meet that challenge of, of helping, um, first of all, those who, want, who claim that there's a big conflict between science and faith on the atheist side, but equally those within the church who obviously um, are, are very skeptical of the evolutionary account of human origins and so on. Um, and there's a question here that, that I, uh, I almost got to, but didn't from Neil, um, who asked this one. This is an interesting way of, of asking it. Um, do you think you've found it easier to convince atheists of Christianity 
or Christians of theistic evolution. Um, that, that, which is the harder, harder group, if you like, to, 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 to win round? I guess it depends on the individual. I'd be <laughs> pressed to generalize. Uh, I've certainly had positive experiences in both those instances if it was possible to have a real in-depth conversation and didn't immediately encounter sort of a deep resistance <laughs> to being able to talk about it. I mean, as I said, lots of people who I think call themselves as atheists have not really thoroughly considered the considerations there about what would be the basis for such an argument. Uh, Chesterton's famous comment about atheism being the most daring of all dogmas because it's the assertion of a universal negative uh, comes to mind that you do have to be awfully bold to say, I know everything that possibly could ever be known and therefore, I can exclude the possibility of God. That's pretty arrogant, isn't it? And so you might argue that that kind of rational approach uh, would draw people away from strict atheism, at least into agnosticism. And then agnosticism is, in some ways, an uncomfortable place to be because it kind of doesn't resolve the question. It's like, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I don't want to know. Maybe I'm... <laughs> uncomfortable with this conversation. I, I, I don't mean to overgeneralize. There are plenty of very principled agnostics who have looked at all the evidence and simply say, I can't decide. There's not enough evidence here to decide. Um, I've looked at all of the pros and the cons, and I'm still right where I am. And that's fine if that's the way it's happened. Although I think a lot of agnostics haven't quite done that homework. And if some of them are listening, I hope they'll consider that possibility as something to spend some time on. I mean, is there a more important question that any of us ask during our brief glimpse of time here on this planet than is there a God? And does that God care about me? And it's how many people go through their entire lives avoiding that. Mm. It may make them somewhat uneasy, but boy, it seems like some time would be appropriate to focus on that we've got lots of questions around how you put together um genesis and evolution and so on um i'm sure these are issues you've you've uh, encountered time and again um this okay. the one though it's being put here particularly by uh, uh, a a human atheist i think daniel who, who's asking this question is an atheist and and wants to know um if adam and eve were the first humans and cain and abel their children who do they reproduce with and how do you get such diversity in today's human DNA from two people with identical DNA? And how do you get a whole population from one single male? Uh, and uh, according to Helix DNA, I'm 1.8% Neanderthal. What are your thoughts on the 22 evidenced fossils dated millions of years ago, hominin species? Now, I'm suspecting Daniel's not very familiar with your approach to these questions anyway. Um, uh, but um, I think it nicely sets up the question, which, which many people will have, or many people will assume that by and large Christians simply hold to some sort of view that there was a first human couple, Adam and Eve, and that everyone came from them. Um, yes. This sets us up to ask, well, well, what do you do with those early chapters of Genesis specifically yourself when it comes to what you see as the, the genetic history of humankind and indeed what we see from the fossil record of other hominids uh, over millennia. Um, where do you want to begin with, with that biggie, Francis? That's a biggie, but it's a good one to talk about. And I'm actually right there with Daniel in terms of the data that he provides about what genetics teaches us about ourselves. We are part of this very complicated, amazing evolutionary history. Uh, we are related to those other uh, animals 
especially uh, animals like non-human primates like the chimpanzees. Uh, we are directly descended from a common ancestor. The evidence for that is overwhelming. I'm an evolutionary creationist, which is to say, I think the evolutionary mechanism by which life has spread across this planet and all of its amazing diversity over something like 4 billion years is about as well established as anything I know in science. So if somebody wants to tell you, well, evolution's just a theory and it'll probably go away someday, it's about as likely to go away as gravity is. <laughs> it is extremely well supported and particularly so by the study of DNA. When I look at my DNA and that of a chimpanzee, and I see that we're 99% identical, and there are even examples where there are sort of leftover bits of DNA that aren't doing anything anymore that got inactivated along the way, and the chimp and I have that same inactive piece of DNA. If God was designing this all de novo, really, would that be the way that it would have happened? So I do not accept the idea that some will argue on the basis of a very limited view of what Genesis 1 and 2 are saying that uh, humankind came uh, de novo as a supernatural act of God Almighty and that we're not related to everything else. So how do you put this together? People listening to this who are perhaps of the view uh, that that had to be the acceptable perspective of any serious Christian must be a little worried right now. Well, don't be worried. <laughs> Again, look at the way in which Genesis 1 and 2 are written. Does this read like a scientific textbook? No, it really does not. It reads like an incredible story of creation with a lot of messages there about who God is and who we should be and how we fell from that expectation in terms of adopting a sinful approach. All of that's really clear. But as a textbook of science, it does not have that flavor. Here again, I mentioned John Walton earlier. Uh, the Lost World of Genesis 1 is worth everybody reading. If you want to try to figure out what would the original audience for Genesis 1 have thought of it? But they clearly would not have thought of this as a literal description of a literal couple that came from nowhere out of the dust and lived in a literal uh, garden with a literal snake. Now, that was not at all the way that this would have been interpreted by that audience. But somehow, uh, we, particularly in the United States, I'm sorry to say, have over the course of the last 150 years adopted a view that Genesis 1 has to be interpreted in that ultra-literal way, or the whole edifice of your Christian faith will fall apart. And that is an unfortunate, very limited view. I mean, gosh, people, go back and read St. Augustine, who was obsessed by trying to interpret what does Genesis really mean, and came up with multiple different views in the course of writing four or five books about it, and ultimately decided you can't really figure out what was intended here. And even warns Christians please don't choose some narrow view of this and claim that that has to be the right one because science might come along and disprove you. And then what have you done? Well, his prediction seems to have come true. So one of the greatest tragedies uh, of the present time, especially in the United States, is young people being told from the pulpit or maybe in Sunday school or maybe in some homeschooling or Christian high school that you have to accept Adam and Eve as literal from the dust creations, otherwise you're not a real Christian. And then they get to university and they find out that the evidence supporting an evolutionary perspective is overwhelming and they are in crisis. And I get emails almost every week from a young person in that space. And that's a terrible, unnecessary tragedy. 
So how do I interpret Adam and Eve? Let me come to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't get there in terms of a single couple, actually a single male from which the female is derived that can be the founder of all humanity. There's not enough DNA diversity in that picture to explain what we see by looking at our species. So what are the possibilities? Well, one is that this is never intended as a absolute literal description of a literal couple, that this is an allegory, that this is a story that is representative of who we are. We are all Adam. We are all Eve. People are troubled by that because certainly St. Paul seems to, in the New Testament, refer to Adam as a real person. And so do you say St. Paul was mistaken? That bothers people quite a bit. Um, another alternative is that this was never intended to be a couple that was there all by themselves, but actually a specific couple chosen by God in some Neolithic kind of community that was the first couple to receive this knowledge of good and evil and this sense of the spiritual, and from whom all of us in certain ways then have uh, received that. But they were not by themselves, and that would solve the problem that we just heard about, about, wait a minute, where did all of these other people come from and came and, and the city that was built, and uh, where did those spouses come from? And if you're forced into an incest model, that doesn't feel quite right either. I think that's a totally defensible perspective. Tim Keller and I have had many discussions about this, and we aren't quite in the same place. But the reassurance I want to have is people, don't worry. You can both accept the scientific evidence of our relatedness to all the other species, and you can accept what Genesis says, and they need not be in a conflict. And you don't have to, in that process, give up the idea that God is the author of it. For me, if God intended to have emerge on this blue planet creatures with big brains who would have the opportunity to understand morality and who would have this hunger, this sort of God-shaped vacuum in their heart to reach out and try to find God, and if God was able to do that by setting in place from the very beginning all of the natural principles and laws to make it possible for that to emerge through those laws, that's amazing. That's even more awesome to me than a supernatural intervention, sort of a bolt from the blue to get the whole thing started. This makes so much more sense. It's elegant. It's beautiful. It's compelling. You're listening to The Profile with me, Justin Briley, and we'll be continuing the conversation with Francis Collins in just a moment. This month, Premier Christianity magazine asks, what really matters to you? Read about one of the biggest issues of today as we address Black Lives Matter head on. Understand the church's response to racism, how we get it wrong, where we get it right, and why there's no excuse for apathy. Immerse yourself in powerful Black Lives Matter features, plus stories of lockdown, interviews, and current affairs. Available in print and online at premierchristianity.com. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile with me, Justin Briley, and brought to you in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like to read the interview that we're airing today with Francis Collins, why not get hold of it in the latest July edition of the magazine? You can ask for a free sample copy by going to the website premierchristianity.com forward slash 
free sample. Today's show was originally recorded as an episode of my unbelievable show, but we're re-airing it here on the profile to give you an introduction to the life and faith of Dr. Francis Collins. And we continue the conversation talking about evolution. Um, a natural next question would be around what do we do with the, the, the theological aspects of this then in terms of the fall and so on. And um, uh, James Mumford asks, um, um, if death and disease preceded the emergence of humanity rather than being a result of the fall um, and ties it to this pandemic, is COVID-19, for instance, a necessary feature of God's creation? Perhaps maybe just before you answer that specific question then, how does your view of Adam and Eve and them standing in this longer evolutionary history of the earth, how does that, how does that work with the idea of a, a human fall as represented in Genesis of, of humans rebelling against God? And many people having seen that as the thing that, as it were, introduces death and disease and so on into the world. Where, where do you, how do you um, interpret that, that way of looking at things? Uh, perhaps you've got a different way of looking at it. Well, no, it's a great question, and I know it is one where serious Christians uh, really differ in terms of their perspective. I guess I have to look at the evidence that we have uh, from the scientific perspective, which is that we humans arrived relatively late on the scene, uh, with life on this planet being discernible as recent, maybe 3.85 billion years ago, and we as Homo sapiens uh, have been around a whole lot less than that, certainly in the neighborhood of a few hundred thousand years where you could start to recognize that this kind of looks like us. So what was going on in that meantime? Obviously, over that course of time, this remarkable divergence of species living out, many of them normal lives, some of them perhaps not so normal lives. There certainly was, over the course of time, a lot of death happening. You can't get away from that. What do you think fossils are telling us anyway? So when one tries to say, well, there couldn't have been any death on the planet until there were humans, you simply can't get there uh, with the scientific data. So maybe that isn't quite what was intended uh, by the scriptures. I think one can look at that in other ways that are better fit uh, for the reality of what we can see from the data. I do think, though, that the, the story of the fall is a really critical one, and that we, as people of faith, really can't make sense out of who we are, about who God is, about our need for redemption, about our need for Jesus, unless we recognize that this is a human characteristic that came along, along with the ability of our intelligence to do great things, uh, came the ability to be rebellious. And who was it uh, who said, maybe it was Chesterton again, <laughs> that the one dogma uh, of the Christian church that can be absolutely documented by human experience every day <laughs> is original sin, that we all have this ability, and we practice it, uh, to use our free will to do things that we know are wrong, which raises the question, how do we know what's wrong and what's right, which is another thing we might get to, Justin, because I think that's a really important conversation that oftentimes doesn't get factored into this faith versus atheism conversation. At any rate, for me, the fall is a critical description of the nature of humanity that we have to come to terms with that maybe is not popular among certain folks who think, oh, people are basically intrinsically good and they only do things occasionally by mistake or because they're forced into it. No, I don't think that's right. We're basically selfish creatures. Uh, we're basically oftentimes out for whatever's going to benefit us and willing uh, to do harm to others to achieve it. You asked about COVID-19 and how do we put that all together mm. in the context of this? 
Well, if you, if you accept the idea that God created the universe to follow natural laws, and I think we all depend on that, because otherwise it would be total chaos all the time, then those natural laws will play out in ways where a tectonic plate slips and an earthquake happens or a tsunami or a mistake happens in the copying of a gene and cancer emerges, or a virus that has been living in a bat or maybe in a pangolin undergoes a little change and somehow gets transmitted to a human who then transmitted all the rest of us. And you sort of can't blame God for the fact that those things are part of it. You do have to say that maybe it was not God's intention for us all to live in a space where everything was perfectly wonderful every day, that God is maybe interested in seeing how we respond to challenges and even to suffering. And that's a very uncomfortable conversation about how can a loving God who's all powerful allow uh, his children occasionally to suffer. And that is, let nobody try to say they have a quick and easy answer to that. I don't, but I do think, and again, Read, read Tom Wright's uh, recent uh, discussion about this uh, in a Time Magazine piece, which is soon going to be a book, that we Christians have to recognize that suffering is part of our lot. And at least we could say that we don't have to explain to God what that's like, given that God in the form of Jesus Christ suffered on the cross in ways that we can barely imagine. God knows about suffering. God went through it himself. I guess what I'm hearing then in a sense is, is that you see death and disease as, as sort of part of the fabric of, of the sort of universe God has created and, and that, that life as it emerges is inevitably susceptible to those forces. Um, in yeah, that I sense, then, would, is, is the human element sort of a different kind of fall if there is, you know, if you use that language in terms of what that, that means for us? Is that more of a, a, a spiritual yeah. dimension to that rather than the the natural evil, if you like, that, that comes from the, the way that viruses and earthquakes and other things can affect us as humans. I think that's right. The, the physicist turned Anglican theologian, John Polkinghorne, I think wrote very compellingly about this, the difference between moral evils and physical evil. And he would put physical evil, such things as an earthquake, uh, or in this case, a terrible virus that emerges. It's in a different space than the kind of moral evil, which is generally what we do uh, to each other, uh, which does have direct consequences for who we are and derives from the fall and the recognition that we are all flawed in this way and we desperately need, therefore, some kind of redemption. A lot of questions have come in, Francis, on um, that, that sort of halfway house between a sort of literal creationist view and the evolutionary creationist view that you hold and it's often known as intelligent design um and um i think there's people who'd be really interested in hearing what your response is to the intelligent design movement um james stroud asks it this way he mentions the book theistic evolution a scientific philosophical and theological critique one of the co-authors of that was stephen meyer and he says it a thousand pages from scientists, theologians, philosophers that say theistic evolution is an oxymoron. Um, will biologists do a rebuttal of this work or even a, a debate with Stephen Meyer? And others have asked whether there might be anything like that uh, in the pipeline. And I've also got some more technical questions about things like junk DNA and so on, which we could get to. But, but first of all, your, your general thoughts on the intelligent design way of looking at the creation evolution debate. 
I'm glad to talk about that. And I know Steve Meyer, and he's a very thoughtful fellow, as are others who have attached themselves to intelligent design. Although I think one of the issues that um, creates some difficulty is exactly what is the current position of intelligent design? What, what are the positions that they are taking that's different than evolutionary creation? I think they focused a lot, as we do, on origins. How did life get started? <laughs> Let's be clear. We have no scientific answer to that right now. Uh, the possibility is certainly there that this was a spontaneous aggregation of molecules that ended up being self-replicating and got the whole thing started. I can't rule out that that was not a supernatural intervention by God, but that generally requires a pretty big leap because that puts sort of you in a God of the gaps space. So it could well be that the way God started the whole process created the potential for life to arise and God was fully aware that was what was going to happen because God's not limited in space or time. So in terms of intelligent design and evolutionary creation, as now I think primarily championed by Biologos, there's no difference here. We both agree this is an unsolved problem and a really interesting one. Originally, intelligent design, though, focused on this idea of irreducible complexity, that there were structures in living organisms, uh, the favorite one being the bacterial flagellum, which had so many components, uh, dozens of proteins, that unless they were all present at the same time, you didn't get any function out of it. So how could this possibly have arisen by a gradual evolutionary process? It was just too improbable. Um, that was a good thing to sort of put forward and think about. The challenge, though, has been that once you really start looking at those details, including the bacterial flagellum, you can see that, in fact, this didn't arrive de novo. When you have lots of organisms to study, the various pieces of this were originally evolved to do other simple things, and over time kind of got together to do increasingly more complex things. And so there's nothing, nothing about the flagellum that you could look at and say requires that kind of supernatural intervention to create complexity. This could readily have happened by a stepwise evolutionary process. And I think that realization, to be honest, kind of put the intelligent design community into a tough spot, because that was their main premise. And now I think it has become a little harder to know exactly what are the objections that are being put forward. Despite the thousand pages, uh, there can be some interesting conversations there. And I do think Biologos has been totally open uh, to that kind of discussion with the intelligent design community, with the reasons to believe community uh, who are uh, not young Earth, they're old Earth, but they don't buy the idea of humans being part of evolution. All of that's really a good thing to do. And I think we'll continue to be a place where Biologos wants to play a role of inspiring those kinds of discourses. They need to be civil, no mudslinging, please, which means it's hard to talk to Answers in Genesis because they don't tend to follow those same rules. But we should be talking about this and we should not be afraid. I mean, when, when do you learn the most? It's when somebody challenges your views. So let's keep doing that. Obviously, part of the intelligent design um, work has been around the issue of, of DNA and the complexity of, of the chemistry there and so on. And that partly plays into the, the question of the origins of life and how did this uh, incredible set of information that we, you know, we all contain within our bodies first, first originate and so on. Yes. Um, um, there's, there's a question here from Eric as well um, on this, which is um, how does Francis reconcile his prior view on junk DNA with the findings of the ENCODE studies that have found functional roles for up to 80% or more 
of non-protein coding DNA. And, and therefore, in what way does DNA that changes with mutation and natural selection qualify as the language of God? Perhaps, perhaps for those who are less familiar with the, the scientific jargon here, you want to just explain what junk DNA is, has come to be known as and why Eric might see that as a, a challenge, potentially, the fact that we, we've discovered it's not so much of a junk field anymore, um, to, to the idea of um, a, a kind of purely long evolutionary process that brought about the DNA um, sequence that we find in, in humans today. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have the question because I think there is an area here that's been misunderstood. And I've never, ever been a fan of this idea of junk DNA. If this is what we've inherited down through the generations and the millennia, why would you consider you just carry along a whole lot of non-functional stuff? There is some non-functional parasitic material there of uh, retrovirus remnants that got in there and couldn't easily be excised and didn't carry a whole lot of uh, real cost to being there. So let's be clear. There is some stuff in the human genome that probably isn't helping you. But to have said, as some claim that I said, but I never did, uh, that anything that wasn't coding for protein was junk, uh, of course not. The most interesting part of the genome is all the regulatory stuff. You have the same DNA in a liver cell and in a brain cell, but they're functioning in vastly different ways. So what's that about? It's got to be this intricate regulatory process, which is what my own research lab now primarily focuses on, what we call epigenomics, not genomics, but epigenomics. And it's wonderfully rich. And every time we look harder, we find more signals of how it is that a gene turns on or off in a given circumstance at a given time in development. So this is wonderful science. And for somebody to suggest this is somehow uh, doing harm to the evolutionary creation perspective really puzzles me. It further enhances the awe that we feel about looking at the language of God, all of it, uh, not just the capital letters that you might call proteins, but all of it, and seeing how intricate and beautiful it is. And so somehow this has gotten put forward as a knock against evolutionary creation. And sometimes it's the intelligent design people who put that forward. It just seems so upside down. I'm, I'm puzzled about how that logic ever sort of came to the forefront. And I hope people will look hard at the evidence. Go to the BioLogo site and see what you see there about the celebration of the entire genome, not just the protein parts, and none of us were happy with that junk word, and I hope we will remove it from our lexicon when it comes to talking about our own DNA instruction book. I, I see a tension here between the, the evolutionary creation point of view or theistic evolution point of view and the intelligent design community in as much as I think the evolutionary creationist is understandably concerned about simply creating another gap for God to fill, which will then be, he'll be squeezed out of by further scientific explanation by positing God as necessary in some way uh, as an agent for creating DNA or whatever it might be. But then on the other hand, you, you have the intelligent design movement saying, but surely there are some things where it's legitimate to say, when you look at the complexity of this, when you look at the, what had to happen um, for, for something like this to emerge, and they're just not convinced that a Darwinian evolutionary explanation makes sense of it. They say, we've, you've got to open up the door to some, other, some kind of form of intelligent design, be that God or some other agency behind it. Um, and, and I suppose the question that I'm left with is, where, where from your point of view, is it legitimate to, if, as it were, you have an explanation that points to God ultimately? Um, mm. 
you know, is it, um, you know, are you still doing God of the gap stuff? If you say, well, look at the fine tuning of the universe and how extraordinary it is that, you know, it produced a life permitting universe and so on. Maybe that's good explanation for God. And, uh, and again, we might say, well, maybe we'll find a scientific explanation. And, and in that sense, um, I suppose the fear perhaps for, for someone who does support an intelligent design perspective is in the end, um, God just becomes a sort of a placeholder for, well, it's great that God's behind all this, but we've got absolutely no physical evidence that points back to, to a sort of an agent behind all this. So it's, it's, it's take it or leave it really, whether you're going to say, well, I, d- I don't see any evidence for God. And someone who says, well, I just feel that God makes sense of there being this kind of playing field on which all these things happen. Um, so, so I suppose is, is there anything that for you, Francis would, constitute something where you could point to some physical evidence say and say no i think this is good ex- uh, the best explanation for this is that there's a divine creator behind it um it, we should set a very high bar that's for sure and let's be clear i'm not going to argue that we'll ever have a scientific proof for god's existence i don't think god intended to provide that so what we can look at are pointers And some of them are stronger than others. And I'll mention the ones that I think are the strongest. But if somebody wants to shoot at them, they can probably find ways to do so. So beginning with the fact that there's something instead of nothing. Science isn't going to help you very much to answer why that is. If you're interested in there being something, then you kind of have to think about, well, how did that come about? And is there a creative force that that possibility emerged? And that creative force cannot itself be part of nature, or you've not solved the problem. You've basically done what logicians would call an infinite regress, trouble all the way down. So you'd have to, if you're going to argue that something happened, you're kind of obligated to figure out, well, where did it come from? And that gets you in the direction of something outside of nature. And of course, then you look at the evidence of what was the beginning like, and you go to the Big Bang, an area where Science has taught us convincingly that our universe had an origin uh, a little less than 14 billion years ago in an unimaginable singularity that even our understanding of natural law can't get us quite back to that ultimate initial sort of moment. We, we can get within, you know, 10 to the minus 42 seconds of it, but not quite. So what's that about? A beginning how did that come again? You're sort of forced to ask your question, well, out of what? Uh, out of nothing? Uh, who created this? And then, as you mentioned a minute ago, Justin, when you look at the universe, you find out things about it that are pretty interesting, that there are these natural laws that are simple, mathematical, beautiful. And I use that word intentionally. As a guy who used to study physics, when, when you first study the Maxwell's equations for electromagnetism, they're not just like really cool. They're beautiful. They're so elegant. Why should nature follow those kinds of laws? There must, it's, you're kind of guessing there must be an intelligence behind all this. And then when you look at those laws and you see they have these constants that just have the value they do, you can't derive them, a dozen of them. And if they were off by a tiny bit, the whole thing wouldn't work anymore. I mean, there would be no possibility of any kind of complexity, much less life. Well, then you're forced to either say somebody twiddled the dials here or we're in one of an infinite number of other universes where the dials are set differently, but we'll never be able to experimentally discover those. So which of those requires more faith that there's a creator 
or that we're part of a multiverse uh, that we can't explore? It's a reasonable question. Which of those requires more faith? Uh, that will get you, and I think that got Einstein to the point of deism, of sort of seeing that there must be an intelligence behind all of this. The harder leap, I think, for many people, skeptics, is to go from deism to theism, that there's a God who didn't just start the whole thing and then went off to do something else, but who actually cares about the creation, including caring about you and me. And there's where I get to the discussion about morality, which I hoped we would get to before we ended. So let me just say a word about that. Sure. All all humans down through the centuries uh, have had this sense that there's something called right and there's something called wrong. I mean, read C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. Go to the appendix, and here's this monotonous rundown of all of those historical cultures, and they all had this in common. Somebody will immediately object, but wait a minute. They've treated people very differently. Oh, yeah, they've interpreted what is right and what is wrong based on cultural situations, and they've put different things in each column but they've never disagreed that there was such a thing as right and wrong, and they've never disagreed that we're supposed to do the thing that's right. Ultimately, you might call that a law, but it's also a law that we break all the time. So where does that come from? Okay, the evolutionist uh, atheist perspective would be to say, well, that's just sort of something that's been baked into us because it helped our survival. Okay, um, I can see that if it's like I'm being good to my children because they have my DNA, but why should I strive to be good to people I don't even know? Why should I admire Oscar Schindler? Uh, Why why should I think uh, that Mother Teresa was such a saint? Hmm, those people were certainly not advantaging their DNA. (laughs) They were putting theirs at risk to save other people who were basically their competitors, and yet we admire them. So is that some misfiring of evolution. That's what Dawkins would say, but that doesn't seem quite right to me. And where this really gets the atheist in trouble is if this is not an indication of something profound, if it's really all just a consequence of evolutionary pressures, then you have to admit that we've been hoodwinked, that there is really no such thing as good or evil. And anybody who wants to use that as a standard to judge human behavior is standing on extremely thin ice. And that's not a comfortable place for people to be. So I find that as an important argument to bake into the rest of this about, you know, the nature of the universe, but also the nature of humanity, right down to the most fundamental perspective of what's right and wrong as a pointer, not a proof, a pointer to God who is good and holy and who expects us to be so also, but knows that we are incapable of it ever since the fall. That's been clear. And that then gets me to the perspective of why, in the Christian faith, I need a solution for my fallen nature. Otherwise, I can't have a relationship with that holy God. And that solution is Jesus Christ. We've just time for a couple more questions. And um, I'm going to actually leave the last two questions, not to people who are Christians, but to, to one who's certainly an atheist, one who I think is at least very much struggling with his faith uh, and might I, I imagine calling himself agnostic at this point. Firstly, um, Matthew wants to know, and this very much ties in with what you were just saying, actually, and, and so you might want to refer back to that, but given the fact that humans are a fortunate result of multiple genetic mutations over a great many generations, isn't it rather arrogant of them to think they're a special creation of God? <clears throat> 
Well, I suppose from a purely uh, DNA-based perspective, yes. Uh, From a perspective of looking across the planet in terms of what we can observe about other creatures, we are pretty special. We have this ability to have a conversation like this uh, and have a discussion about good and evil and to actually carry out our lives in ways that we don't see other animals or certainly plants being able to do. So even from a purely naturalistic perspective, if you, if you parachuted in from another planet and you began categorizing uh, the species you found, uh, human beings would probably uh, occupy a great deal of your attention because they stand out in these ways of the effort to practice moral behavior that you don't see, at least not fully formed in other animals. And the other question comes from an account that goes under the name of when belief dies. And um, as I said, someone who I think has struggled with faith in, in the recent, in the last year or so. And I think actually um, knowing a little bit about this person, actually um, Yuval Noah Harari's book Sapiens um, was somewhat instrumental in, in causing a lot of doubt, which really just sets out the sort of his, history as, as he sees it of, hu- you know, humans being pretty late on the scene when it comes to many other hominid forms and so on and, and all the different ways in which life went in different directions down yes. the millennia. Um, and, and this is the question. It's a rather a long one. So forgive me if I just read, read, read all of this for you, Francis. Um, this person asks, um, the, the Bible speaks about God's people knowing God, that he writes his law upon their heart. He dwells with them. Uh, we can look at specific moments within scripture when Moses seeing the face of God or Paul on his road to Damascus experience, Simon Peter meeting God in the flesh. And so this person says, I don't think I'm asking for anything special. I just want to know that God is real and that my beliefs in him that I used to hold are correct and tenable. But I can't know this. At least I've not come across anything that convinces me as of yet. And as I keep saying, I don't think I have control over what does or does not convince me. Maybe uh, uh, Francis is in the same place as me. Maybe he can't prove God is real. And that's why he looks to story and emotion and other options to help him push himself into a belief in God, into biologos. But hope in and of itself isn't a basis for a life encapsulating decisions i love to hear francis thoughts and uh, apparently a review of your book the language of god is coming from from this person as well um that, but that that's that's almost a pastoral question as much as anything which, which is you know and i think this is what a lot of people struggle with um if if you're telling me i can't look at a scientific fact necessarily and say there you go there's your proof of god yeah. um and um if i haven't had an experience like a moses or a Saul on the road to Damascus or, or something like that. How, how am I to blame if I just can't be convinced at this point in my life or, or I've lost my belief or, or whatever it may be? Don't know where you want to begin with that one, Francis. I think it's a wonderful question. And I think uh, anybody who calls themselves a believer also has doubts that pop up at various levels of severity over time. I certainly do. You know, Paul Tillich uh, wrote that doubt is not the opposite of belief. It's an element of belief. And doubts are an opportunity also, of course, to try to identify areas where one might need to dig a little deeper and to see where are those doubts coming from and how might others who face those uh, address them. I've found that to be the case. Sure, I've gone through plenty of periods in my life where I bump into something and I think, you know, why would God do that? And how is it that I've been so comfortable uh, with this belief thing when I'm, in, I'm seeing something that does, doesn't seem quite to fit. And that requires then a deeper investigation. 
I don't have a proof. I don't have the ability to tell you that the God that I have sort of given my life to is really there. I know that I find closeness uh, in that relationship by what happens at five o'clock in the morning when I'm up uh, reading some verses from scripture. Right now I'm reading the Psalms a lot because COVID-19 seems to suggest that both the laments and the praises and the despondency all kind of fit. But that brings me into a space that feels significant. I don't think it was God's intention to give us the proof that we all long for. And suppose he had, then we would all be, you know, good little robots uh, following in a very predictable course. Wouldn't be very interesting, would it? I think part of God's intention is to call upon us to see what interest we're able to develop in this space. And are we willing to take that leap without the proof to put our trust in something other than ourselves? And that's a scary thing to do without a guarantee that it's going to benefit you in this life or the next, but it's the risk I've been willing to take. And it has paid back to me in terms of a sense of joy, the sense of God's love, the sense of seeing God in other people and other experiences. So even if it turns out I've been hoodwinked into something, it was worth it, <laughs> but I don't think I have. <laughs> From my perspective as a scientist seeking for truth, I found truth in this space, too, and I claim that. Just finishing on a really practical issue, you're going to be going back to your very important work on the coronavirus um, once we finish this interview. Um, Tim wants to know, how do you handle the weight of that, dealing with COVID-19, waiting for cures and vaccine? And even what what, what are your opinions about a possible timing for a a vaccine for COVID-19 while we wait? And and Josh on that front also asks, and, and how does your faith help in this when you're coordinating the coronavirus response with the White House and so on? Well, yeah, and that is a really good way to sort of finish up what we've been talking about because it brings all this together. Uh, My faith in God, my belief in the historical person of Jesus Christ as somebody that had this ability to bridge between God and humanity, and that means bridge to me, all of that feeds into uh, this deeply intense and anxiety-producing period that we're in the midst of where I do feel this burden many times of responsibility that we can't make mistakes and we can't miss opportunities and we can't have even a day go by uh, where something that could have happened didn't because of some disorganization or lack of motivation. I'm surrounded by other people who feel the same way, but maybe I particularly as the director of the largest supporter of biomedical research in the world uh, feel this upon me. I've had plenty of experiences of running large, complicated projects, including the Human Genome Project, and those were intense too, but this is much more so because of this urgency and this feeling that lives are at stake and we're not through this yet. And if we, if we miss the opportunity uh, to identify an effective treatment or if our vaccines end up being badly chosen or come out three months later than they could have, people are going to lose their lives to that. And that does weigh upon me. And I do many times have to ask uh, God for some help. I'm sort of feeling the weight without having it becoming paralyzing. Weight that motivates you. That's what I want. (laughs) And I got plenty of that. Weight that makes you feel like, ah, this is too much. I don't know how I'm going to manage this one more day. That's not good. 
And that's where prayer really has helped me a lot, reading those psalms, realizing this is not the first time humanity has been faced with a plague. So I shouldn't imagine that this is so exceptional that nobody else has ever experienced anything like it before. Um, We're all tied together that way. And with all of the teams that are assembled right now and their willingness uh, to do whatever it takes uh, to make this happen, and with God's grace, uh, and I know God suffers along with all those who are suffering from this virus, we will get through this. We will figure it out. But the sooner we get there, uh, the better that will be. And that's what I guess I should now turn my attention back to for the rest of my Saturday and Sunday. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show, France. It's a real personal treat for me. Again, thank you so much for your very valuable time. Um, uh, congratulations again on being the recipient of this year's Templeton Prize. And uh, from myself and all of the unbelievable listening and watching community, thank you very much for being with me on the show today. Thank you, Justin. And thank you for what Unbelievable does to reach out to all those people who want to talk about these interesting issues. Hooray for that. They don't get talked about enough. That was Dr. Francis Collins joining me, Justin Briley, here on The Profile, originally aired as an episode of my Unbelievable show. You can also watch the video over on the Unbelievable YouTube channel if you'd like to. And don't forget, you can also read today's interview in the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the July edition. If you'd like a free sample copy, simply ask for one over at premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample for now thanks for joining me here on the profile and do come back again next week for more conversations with leading christians